Good evening. I'm going to experiment a little bit. I'm going to preach from, from down here, uh, but it won't be a classy sermon. It'll just be a regular one. Um, so you can, you can raise your hand, uh, but I will not call on you. Um, this is a little bit, uh, little bit last, last minute for me putting this together, and I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about, and I realized I had all these notes uh, from our men's, men's study earlier this year on Jonah. So hopefully this is far enough removed from that that it, it still feels uh, fresh, but if, if it feels too close to that, hopefully this is a good uh, reminder. Jonah is a really interesting story to me. Um, it's a story that we're often taught from a very young age. If you have parents that brought you to church, it's one of the first Bible stories that you would learn. And even if you didn't grow up that way, probably you know the story about Jonah and the big fish. Uh, but what no, nobody ever explained to me when I was a kid was what the story is actually about. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight is kind of going through Jonah. We'll, we'll walk through uh, the text of Jonah. It's a pretty short book and talk about some of the points from that. And then I'd also like to, to think about um, particularly how that impacts our approach to evangelism uh, in our personal lives. Because the story of Jonah is a lot about God and God's heart and how God looks at people and the gap between how God looks at people and how we often look at people. And it's meant to help us close that gap. And so we'll go through the story of Jonah and wrap up with some applications on how we can uh, be better at evangelism. So let's start reading together in Jonah chapter 1 verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So there's a couple things that we might want to note from this. First, we need to have context on Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire at this time. And the Assyrian Empire... Suffice to say, they're really, really, really bad people. The, the closest comparison that we could probably relate to would be like the Nazis or terrorist organizations. This is an empire of people that take pleasure in conquering other people and then torturing those people that they have conquered simply because they enjoy it. They like to hurt other people and harm other people as much as they can because for whatever reason, that was fun to them. And so that is the kind of culture that Jonah is, is sent to go preach to. And you can understand how that would be uh, a pretty difficult charge for Jonah to handle. And so maybe it seems like Jonah is, is afraid of going to speak to the Ninevites. And so instead of obeying God, he decides that he's going to run away. And he decides to go to Tarshish. We don't know specifically where Tarshish was, but it's pretty much as far west as you can get from Nineveh. It would be like if God told you to go preach in New York and instead you went to the Nashville airport and hopped on a plane to Seattle. Um, and in particular, I think it's interesting the reason that Jonah is trying to do this. Because he's trying to get away from the presence of the Lord. And that should strike us as being kind of a, a weird idea. Like you can imagine Jonah telling one of his friends what he's doing. He's like, yeah, God asked me to go preach to the Ninevites and I'm not doing that, so I think I'm just going to get on a boat and just start going west and hope that eventually I'm out of range, I guess. Like, it's, it's pretty obviously a bad and ridiculous uh, plan, and that should highlight to us 
some of the issues that are going on in Jonah's heart as we start to get into this story. And of course, this plan doesn't work. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Do you notice the contrast that's, that's happening in this situation? These, these sailors are not Hebrews. They don't serve God. They all have their own uh, false idols and gods that they're praying to. But when this storm comes, they're pretty quick to recognize this is being brought upon us by a deity, by a divine being. And they don't, they don't understand who that is yet, but they're pretty clear to recognize that message. And in contrast, Jonah, the prophet who knows God and who has received prophecy from God, he's pretty oblivious to the message that God is trying to communicate to him. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So a couple things with that. First of all, if Jonah's saying that, it should be pretty obvious to him that traveling by sea not a great way to escape God. But also, do you notice it's kind of weird that he says, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord? Does somebody who's trying to run away from God really strike you as somebody who, who fears God and should take pride in, in being a Hebrew? But that's kind of how Jonah frames himself up here. And that should indicate to us that Jonah isn't really being entirely honest, maybe with himself. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. This seems like a pretty honorable thing for Jonah to say, right? Like, sacrifice me, throw me into the sea, and I'll sacrifice myself on your behalf. I'll, I'll die and I'll drown and you guys will make it through the storm. Does that seem like a pretty like, honorable, noble thing for him to, to do? You know what else would probably work? It would probably work for Jonah to decide to do what God had commanded him to do. See, I don't think Jonah really cares about these, these sailors. It seems like this might be a last-ditch effort on his behalf to try and, and get out of actually going to Nineveh. It seems like maybe he would rather die then go and preach to the Ninevites. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging." I think it's interesting as well that these pagan uh, sailors are pretty concerned about Jonah, who's a random stranger, and ostensibly the reason that they're in this whole situation in the first place. 
but they're very concerned about his well-being and, and try their best to make it back to land so that they don't have to throw him into the sea. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So here's where the famous fish comes in. Jonah gets swallowed up. I think Disney maybe ruins this imagery a little bit. Like if you ever watched the Pinocchio movie as a kid, there's a guy that's like inside the whale and he's in there like fishing and he's got a little campfire going. And it's pretty spacious. And I imagine that for Jonah, this was actually pretty uncomfortable. And Jonah's in there for three days and three nights. And he gets to a point where he seems like he's been broken down. And he starts to have a change of heart and he prays to God. So let's read that prayer. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And that sounds like a really beautiful prayer, right? Like if I told you that that was something that David had written in the Psalms, you would think that is, that's a beautiful prayer about trust and faith in God to deliver even in the most difficult of times. And Jonah says some things that are, that are true and, and really beautiful sentiments, whether he means them or not. Because if we think about this prayer within the context of Jonah's situation, you start to notice that there's something missing, right? But do you notice that Jonah doesn't actually ever express any wrongdoing? Never is there an actual statement that just says, I'm sorry, God, I was wrong, I sinned. You see that when David writes prayers like this. He's very explicit about the fact that he's done wrong. Jonah kind of dances around it. The closest he ever says to that is in verse 4 when he says, I am driven away from your sight. Well, Jonah, if you have forgotten, that was actually your goal. You were actually trying to get as far away from God as you could. That's how you got into the situation. You were not driven away. You were trying to get away. And so the sentiment that Jonah is, is offering here seems like it's an expression of faith, but it's couched a little bit in some arrogance and some entitlement. In fact, the thing that, that Jonah actually says kind of reminds me of the prayer of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember that parable where there's the Pharisee who's praying in the temple and he's praying, thank you, God, that I'm not as, as evil as all of these sinners. Does the thing that Jonah says kind of strike you that way? Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Jonah's setting up this contrast between himself and people who worship idols 
But so far in this story, the people who worship idols have been far more receptive to God's message than Jonah has been. And so I think Jonah isn't looking at himself very honestly yet. He's, he's starting to change a little bit. He's starting to get scared straight. But that heart change really hasn't occurred yet. In spite of this, God, God shows mercy to him. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out, Jonah out upon the dry land. And so now we're going to get into chapter 3. In chapter 3, it's going to be kind of a reenactment of what we saw in chapter 1, but with some changes this time. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an, was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. A couple things we want to notice here. That word uh, in Jonah's message to Nineveh, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. The original Hebrew word for overthrown implies the idea of being uh, overturned or being turned upside down. And at first glance, it sounds like that means that Nineveh is going to be destroyed. But what we see is Nineveh is actually turned upside down, not physically, but spiritually. We see a complete repentance on the, the behalf of the Ninevites. They completely change uh, their ways. And this, this occurs not only from the greatest of them, but to the least of them. And the, the next verses emphasize this fact. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. We should be, first of all, struck by the example of this king here because of the humility that he displays. I, I can't help but think of Pharaoh in Exodus and the difference between this king and Pharaoh. Because this king, you would expect, is going to be completely resistant to this, this message. But in fact, he is one of the most humble kings that we see in the Bible because he immediately removes himself from his throne as if to say, I'm not king anymore. God, God is in charge here. And then he leads his people in complete repentance from the king all the way down to even, even their livestock are wearing sackcloth and ashes in a symbol of their penitence. And you notice that this king, he doesn't really understand very much about God because he doesn't have very much certainty that God is going to have mercy. He says, he says maybe God will have mercy on us. Does that remind you of also what the captain said in chapter 1? Perhaps this God will give a thought to us. These idol worshipers don't understand very much about God because they don't understand just how eager God is to extend mercy to them, just how eager God is that they don't perish. 
But for all of that, they seem to get it in a way that Jonah does not. Because when this happens, when God extends mercy to them, Jonah's reaction is pretty terrible. This is where the kid's version of this story usually ends. Like Jonah, Jonah go, tries to run away from God, and he gets swallowed by the big fish and gets spit up. And he goes to Nineveh because he's got a change of heart, and he preaches, and they all repent, and everybody lives happily ever after. But chapter 4, Jonah's reaction to God's mercy on Nineveh, is really the crux of this story. Because this whole story was never really about the wickedness of Nineveh. It was always about the wickedness in Jonah's heart. So God has mercy on the Ninevites, and then look how Jonah reacts. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would, what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. So an interesting thing that Jonah says in the beginning of this chapter, it seems like maybe in chapter 1, okay, the reason he would be afraid or not want to go to Nineveh is because he's afraid of them. He was afraid that they might hurt him. But what he says is, actually, the reason I didn't want to go is because I knew that they were going to repent, and I didn't want that because I hate them. Jonah just doesn't want the Ninevites to be saved. He doesn't want them to receive God's mercy. And throughout this whole story, you'll notice that Jonah is always trying to be the arbiter and the judge of who receives God's mercy and who doesn't. And typically, he's always the one who's worthy of God's mercy in his eyes, and nobody else ever is. You notice what's interesting about Jonah's prayer? Like, he prays that he's going to die. And presumably, when he prays that, he expects that when he dies, he's going to go to go to heaven. And yet he is the person in the story who has, has demonstrated the worst heart. He has the least the kind of heart that God is really looking for. He's the kind of person who would wind up in heaven and look around and start complaining that he was stuck there with a bunch of sinners. And so God 
to demonstrate Jonah's own arrogance to him, creates this, this situation with this plant, where the plant rises up and then it dies. And he says, Jonah, you pity this plant. And the joke here is that Jonah doesn't pity the plant. Jonah pities himself. And the plant exposes two layers of arrogance and hypocrisy on Jonah's part. First of all, that he cares more about a plant than he does about the actual human beings in Nineveh who are, are truly worthy of his concern, but also that the only reason he cares about the plant is because the plant served him. Because Jonah is arrogant and he's selfish. And so the only thing that seems to be able to get him to care is when something serves him. What Jonah doesn't seem to recognize, and maybe this is why Jonah is so angry, he doesn't think that the Ninevites are worthy of God's mercy. He doesn't want them to receive it. And make no mistakes, the Ninevites are really, really bad people before this. Like, they are about as evil as it gets. But Jonah seems oblivious to the fact that he also is desperately in need of God's mercy. Because the Ninevites and the, the other um, pagans that we see in this story, the sailors, when they interact with God, their repentance is immediate and genuine. But Jonah is the guy who's a prophet who's supposed to know who God is, who's supposed to love God, and yet he's the one who's running away from God, who's begrudgingly obeying God, and who's getting angry at God when God is showing mercy to other people. Jonah doesn't recognize how much he needs God's mercy and how much mercy God is showing to him because God keeps giving him second chances too. And so there's this kind of abrupt ending to this story. It just kind of cuts off, and it's kind of like a Christopher Nolan movie, you know, like Inception with the top, where it's like you kind of have to, to decide how you think the story ends. Like, does Jonah see the error of his ways and repent and change his heart, or does he stay hard-hearted and selfish? And we don't know. We don't, we're not told. And I think the reason that we're not told is because the heart that's in question isn't actually Jonah's heart. Jonah is meant to reflect something to us. It's actually meant to reflect our heart to us. It's meant to cause us to ask ourselves, do I have a heart like Jonah? Do I look at people the way that Jonah looks at people? Do I see myself as being inherently deserving and worthy of God's mercy and yet look at other people who I deem as bad people and see them as not worthy of God's mercy? The picture we get here is a picture of the gap between our hearts and God's hearts because God sees all of the people in this story as worthy of mercy. And all of the people in this story are sinful. But God has mercy on all of them. And what we're supposed to see is that there's going to be a gap there between the way that we see people and the way that God sees people. I think sometimes we struggle with evangelism and maybe part of the reason for that is because our hearts are a little too much like Jonah. We view ourselves as being a little bit too much good people who are worthy of God's mercy. We have a hard time caring about people who are sinners that you know, just don't matter as much to us. And I think the question that we're supposed to be asking ourselves as a result of this story is, do I care about those people the way that God cares about them? 
Because ultimately, their value isn't determined by my perspective. It's determined by God. And the thing that Jonah doesn't seem to grasp, and hopefully he gets it by the end of the story, is that it's up to God to decide who gets mercy, not his own standards. Uh, as we wrap up, I'd like to think about a couple of practical applications to this, particularly in how it relates to the way that we approach uh, evangelism a- as a church, but particularly as, as individuals. The first thing I'd like to think about is that we need to see unbelievers as, as souls and not threats. You know, Jonah was sent to people who are legitimate threats. Like, it's plausible that they would have uh, heard his message and decided, hey, we don't like you and we're just going to kill you for fun because we're super evil. We don't really have that situation uh, in the United States, at least. But I think I have definitely had the mindset in the past, and I think probably still am trying to do, uh, to not have this mindset, that, you know, somebody who's not a Christian is maybe a bit of a threat to me. Like, if I, if I allow them to get too close to me, they're going to, like, tempt me or cause me to sin or infect me in some way. And so I kind of need to move through life with my guard up of like, if I, if I allow myself to get too much into their lives, that could put me in danger spiritually. And certainly there's a, a degree to which we want to be aware of the impact of, of bad influence. The Bible's really clear about that, and that we're not to take part in the unfruitful works of darkness, and that we're not supposed to be of the world. Sometimes we try so hard not to be of the world that we are maybe even trying not to be in the world. And it's easier just for me to be in, in my bubble around the people who think and act exactly like me because those are the people who I really care about being in heaven with anyway. And when I'm thinking like that, that is the exact same arrogance that Jonah has. That I get to be the one who decides who's worthy of salvation and who isn't. Instead of seeing that God's mercy is extended to everybody and those those people out there who are lost are just as desperately in need of God's mercy as, as I am. If I can kind of get on my soapbox a little bit uh, and talk about a particular area where I think we as Christians maybe struggle with this. And this is my opinion, so you're welcome to disagree with me. Uh, but I think Christians a lot of times have a hard time with this in the way that they uh, think and talk about um, LGBT issues and, and people. Um, I think it's, it's clear that there's a lot of agendas that are being pushed, and, and those things can be scary because we can wonder, okay, well, like, how's that going to affect us? Like, does that mean we might be uh, looked down upon for the ways that we think about that? Or, like, maybe I'll be put in a situation where I would have to make a, a judgment or, or do something that I could lose my job. And those situations are scary, and there have even been uh, people in this congregation that have faced some of that. And those are, those are scary and hard things to deal with. But are we so concerned about how those ideas and agendas are going to impact our, uh, our lives that we're not worried about how those ideas are negatively impacting the people who are being led astray by them? Are we, are we concerned about how those ideas and ideologies are harming the people who are being deceived by them. Because there's people out there who are being told, hey, if you're unhappy and you're unfulfilled, the reason for that is because you need to lean into like, finding your right gender orientation or like, leaning into who you're really sexually attracted to. 
instead of being told, hey, the reason that you're unhappy and feeling unfulfilled is because you don't have a relationship with God and your gender orientation or who you're attracted to isn't going to fill that hole. The only way to solve that is coming into contact with the blood of Christ. And as long as people are believing that those other things are the solution, they're being lied to, and that's going to harm them. And I think it's important for us to care enough about those people to recognize that we actually have the solution. We actually know the good news. And so I think we need to be careful about how we think about those things and how we talk about those things because sometimes we can feel like maybe people who identify as, as LGBT or, or support those things are just kind of out to get us, out to get after Christians. Or maybe we even talk about them mockingly or disparagingly. And, and to be fair, uh, for somebody who deals with those temptations, the Bible has some, some things to say that are going to be hard to swallow. And a lot of those people probably won't be interested in the gospel or might not like Christians for that, and I think that's maybe to be expected. But there, there also may come a time where you or I or, or somebody in this congregation encounters somebody who says, hey, I, I have these, these feelings. Regardless of where they came from, I've got to deal with them now. And I, I recognize that I need to deal with them God's way and not my way. And I don't really know how to navigate that. Can you help me? And I hope that uh, this church is a place, and I think it is, but I hope that this church is a place where somebody like that can come and not feel like they have to fix themselves before they're allowed to have the spiritual support that they need to actually navigate that in the way that God wants them to. And that's true for any kind of of sin and, temp- and temptation that somebody might deal with. In order to do that effectively, we have to be willing to look at people the way that God sees them and to see them as, as souls who are in need of God's mercy just like us, not dangers. Because, spoiler alert, we're on the winning team. <laughs> and the second thing I want us to, to think about is that God can even use the worst possible person for the job. He can even use the worst possible person to share the gospel. Because one thing you should notice about Jonah throughout this entire story is that he is just the worst. Like, he's just the absolute worst. He's such a jerk. He's just awful. And he says a really interesting thing in chapter 4. He says, the reason I didn't want to go to the Ninevites was because I was afraid they would listen. So say all you will about Jonah's flaws, But basically what he says to God was, I didn't want to preach to them because I was really worried that my evangelism would be super effective and a lot of people would repent and turn back to you. Like, that's pretty opposite of the way that we think about our odds of success in sharing the gospel, right? But Jonah, for all his flaws, really believes in the power of God's message. So much so that he decides, you know what, I need to actively run away from these people in order to prevent them from repenting. And I think that should be encouraging for us because Jonah is just the worst possible guy for this job. Like not only, it's not that he's a bad preacher, he is actively hoping that he will fail. He is actively hoping that people do not listen to what he has to say. 
And so if you feel unqualified to share the gospel, if you feel like you can't do that, just by actually hoping that people will listen to, to God's word, just by wanting them to hear what God has to say, you are already more qualified than Jonah. But the hilarious thing about Jonah, I don't know, I don't know if God was trying to like mess with him or what, but like Jonah does not want the Ninevites to repent, and he's one of the most effective preachers in the whole Bible. Like the entire city listens to him. And I'm not saying that that is going to uh, necessarily happen for, for every one of us. But if God can use somebody like Jonah who does not want to share the good news, to share the good news with everybody super effectively, then certainly he can use you and he can use me. And, and that's kind of all that I, that I want to share with you guys this evening. I hope that gets us energized and excited about um, sharing the gospel with people. I know that that is something that I want to do better at and don't always feel like I do a great job of. And so everything I wanted to talk about tonight is, is as much to kind of energize and, and uh, hype up myself to do better as it is for, for anybody else. But I hope that encourages you that we can be effective in sharing the gospel because it's not about any one of us. It's not about you. It's not about me. It wasn't about Jonah. It is about the power of the gospel itself. And that's why Jonah was successful, because God was working through him. Um, and that's, that's all I wanted to share with you this evening. I hope that is encouraging to you. Um, if there's anybody here who has any spiritual needs that we can uh, help you address, we, we would love to do that. You can make your way down to the front and uh, make your requests known as we stand and sing.